Today is Wednesday, September the 14th. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and my colleague is Joe King. Do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how Facebook, Google, Amazon, and other big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. NASA replaces Artemis One's leaky fuel seals. A fueling test could happen as early as September 17th. NASA has completed a critical repair of its next-generation space launch system rocket. On Friday, engineers replaced the leaky seal that forced the agency to scrub its most recent attempt to launch Artemis One. On September 3rd, a fitting on one of the fuel lines to the space launch system began leaking hydrogen. Ground crew at Kennedy Space Center tried to troubleshoot the problem three times, only for the leak to persist and force NASA to call off the launch attempt. On Friday, engineers also replaced a seal on the 4-inch hydrogen bleed line that was responsible for a smaller leak during an earlier August 29th launch attempt. With the new gaskets in place, NASA plans to conduct a fueling test to verify they're working as intended. The dry run will see engineers attempt to load the space launch system with all 736,000 gallons of liquid hydrogen and oxygen it would need during a regular flight. NASA hopes to successfully complete that test as early as September 17th. This demonstration will allow engineers to check the new seals under cryogenic or super-cold conditions as expected on launch day and before proceeding to the next launch attempt, the agency said. Last Thursday, NASA announced it was targeting September the 23rd for another go at putting Artemis 1 into space, with September 27th as a backup. Whether it can make those dates will depend on next week's fueling system and the decision from the U.S. Space Force Flight regulations require that NASA test the battery of Artemis 1's flight termination system every 20 days. That's something it can only do within the Kennedy Space Center's Vehicle Assembly Building. The Space Force previously granted the agency an extension on the 20-day deadline. NASA has now asked for another waiver. The leak occurred at a quick disconnect and interface connecting the SLS core stage with a propellant line coming from the giant rocket's mobile launch tower. After analyzing the issue for a few days, the Artemis 1 team has decided to replace the seal on the misbehaving quick disconnect. Performing the work at the pad requires technicians to set up an enclosure around the work area to protect the hardware from the weather and other environmental conditions, but enables engineers to test the repair under cryogenic or super-cold conditions. Performing the work at the pad also allows teams to gather as much data as possible to understand the cause of the issue. 
teams may return the rocket to the vehicle assembly building to perform additional work that does not require the use of cryogenic facilities available only at the pad. Let's hope we can get this thing up and flying into the air. Thousands built U.S. for free internet in one child's name. The scam targeted the Affordable Connectivity Program, renewing fears that a program meant to close the country's digital divide susceptible to fraud. In Oklahoma, 1,042 households obtained their broadband aid by saying they had a four-year-old child, the same four-year-old who was receiving Medicaid benefits. The child's name, date of birth, and last four digits of their Social Security number were used over and over and over again, according to the FCC, which said the transaction began in December. Nationally, the FCC top watchdog discovered 11 other instances which seemingly eligible applicants had been used to obtain benefits hundreds of times each. In Texas, for example, one unnamed telecom company enrolled 997 households in the government internet program, even though each of the applicants included the same 18-year-old. The apparent plot targeted the Affordable Connectivity Program, which provides up to $30 each month towards millions of Americans' mobile phone or home internet bills, according to the Inspector General for the Federal Communications Commission, a watchdog that uncovered the alleged scam. In total, the potentially fraudulent activity may have resulted in about $1.4 million in misspending. The government sent that money directly to telecom carriers, which under law accept federal benefits on their subscribers' behalf and apply the discounts to customers' bills. None of the companies that process the suspect applications and receive federal funds are named in the report. But the FCC's Inspector General described the matter as a serious threat. Its finding offered a stark reminder of the myriad problems that plague its decades-old predecessor, an initiative to provide low-cost telephone service that had been riddled with fraud over the years. The agency's inspector general said in a statement that telecom providers seeking program support each month after failing to properly train and monitor their sales agents' enrollment activity will be held accountable. The FCC, meanwhile, said it had taken steps to root out the fraud and prevent it from occurring again. It directed the independent nonprofit organization that oversees the broadband program to update its application process expeditiously. And the FCC added in a public notice that the government is de-enrolling those who should never have received assistance in the first place. The agency said in a statement, we will remain vigilant so that the Affordable Connectivity Program operates as Congress envisioned and stays true to its intended purpose of assisting families most at risk of digital disconnection. Lawmakers approved the Affordable Connectivity Program on a bipartisan vote last November, as Congress sought to ensure hard-hit, cash-strapped Americans could maintain their internet connections at a time when life, work, and school had migrated online. Since its adoption, more than 13 million subscribers have enrolled, representing roughly one quarter of the total number of Americans who are estimated to be eligible. 
the gap reflects the challenges the government faces in reaching communities that are not connected and navigating them through what can be a complicated application process. In doing so, though, the government has faced a challenge, encouraging participation while warding off criminals who may be inclined to steal the aid from Washington. The alleged fraud hinges on a critical stipulation in the program. An entire household is eligible for monthly broadband subsidies even if only one person, including a child or dependent, meets the criteria for participation. A family could receive a monthly $30 credit, for example, if they have a student who receives a free and reduced lunch even if their parents do not obtain other federal support. To receive aid this way, applicants for broadband bill credits are asked to provide the name of the child or other dependent through which they qualify. But telecom carriers and the U.S. government apparently did not catch repeated instances in which households use the same child or other dependent's name and address, and in some cases, even the same partial Social Security number and receive monthly support anyway. Google closed the operation of the Pixelbook department. It has been three years since the last Pixelbook was announced. A new Pixelbook is no longer part of Google's future hardware roadmap. Google had canceled the next version of the Pixelbook laptop and dissolved the team responsible for building it. The device was far along in development and expected to debut next year. But the project was cut as part of recent cost-cutting measures inside of Google. Members of the team have been transferred elsewhere inside the company. The next Pixelbook is no more, and the team will likely be dispersed to work with OEM partners in creating the next generation of Chrome OS devices. Dating all the way back to the original Google Pixel Chromebook and the Nexus family of Android phones, Google's hardware has often meant to be a guiding light for other manufacturers. Chromebook sales dropped dramatically in 2021. An IDC report shows that Chromebook sales have dropped massively in the second half of 2021. IDC reports that sales dropped 63.6% year-on-year in the fourth quarter of 2021, although full-year growth is at 13.5%. In 2021, full-year Chromebook shipments reach a mere 37 million units, worse than the prediction of 43 million shipments, 33.5% more than 2020. In the third quarter of 2021, shipments dropped 29.8% year-on-year as education spending slowed down in the United States. What was the reason for the poor Chromebook sales in 2021? Why? Chromebook sales dropped massively last year. IDC identifies supply and demand issues as the reason for Chromebook's massive drop in sales in 2021, noting that there is a low supply of Chromebooks due to the global computer component shortage. Supply has been unusually tight for Chromebooks as component shortages have led vendors to prioritize Windows machines due to their higher price tags further suppressing Chromebook shipments on a global scale. Vendors have instead turned their focus towards Windows 11, which is priced higher, 
thereby crippling Chromebook sales, which was already declining in the third quarter of last year. First, Chromebook sales dropped as educational institutions spent less on Chromebook devices, and sales continued to drop in the fourth quarter of last year as vendors geared their spending towards Windows 11. Considering Chromebook's continued drop in sales over the past year, its sales outlook is looking dim, and there's no telling when sales could pick up again. Organizations are steering away from Chromebooks, while Chromebook sales initially picked up when the pandemic began. Life as we know it is slowly getting back to normal, albeit a new norm. Educational institutions, businesses, and organizations have all begun to settle into that new norm and pivot towards a future in which Chromebooks might not be a high priority for spending as it was before. That means Chromebook may need to regroup and figure out a new strategy that will help pick up sales going forward and will hopefully place the product into its customer's future. The FCC has obtained detailed broadband maps from ISPs for the first time ever. The Federal Communications Commission has collected precise broadband availability information from Internet service providers for the first time and aims to release a first draft of a new broadband map in November. The FCC last week completed the first filing window for submitting data on where broadband service is and is not available. The FCC said for the first time ever, we have collected extensive location-by-location data on precisely where broadband services are available, and now we are ready to get to work and start developing new and improved broadband maps. The resulting maps should show whether fixed broadband service is available at each residence or business location. The FCC inaccurate broadband maps have long made it difficult to distribute deployment grants where they're needed most. Current maps are based on the Form 477 Data Collection Program, in which ISPs report whether they offer service in each census block, which essentially lets ISP count an entire census block as served, even if it can just serve just one home in the area. The new, more accurate maps will be used to help distribute over $42 billion from the Broadband Equity Access and Deployment Program created by Congress in the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. ISPs, in many cases, have given potential customers false information, leading them to believe Internet access would be available in homes that don't have it. Comcast and other ISPs have required thousands of dollars in upfront fees to wire up homes, even after falsely promising service would be available at a specific address. The FCC mapping upgrade isn't designed specifically to address that problem, but it could ultimately make it easier for homeowners to get accurate information. The FCC voted in August of 2019 to require ISPs to submit more accurate data, despite the major broadband industry trade groups objecting to requirements to report availability below the census block level. Congress followed up by imposing a law with similar requirements and provided $98 million for the mapping overhaul in December 2020. The FCC letter to members of Congress in March of 2021 explained why the process wouldn't be completed quickly. 
To fully implement the Broadband Data Act, the Commission must revamp its data collection methods and platform. We must create a framework for massive amounts of data from many different sources to interrelate with one another and to feed into a comprehensive, user-friendly data set on broadband availability. We also need to develop, test, and launch IT systems to collect and verify these various data. We must create, for the first time, a publicly accessible data-driven map of serviceable locations where broadband is or should be available throughout the United States. We must then collect accurate and complete data from each and every broadband service provider on precisely where it offers broadband services, no longer relying on census blocks, but drilling down to the location of each home and small business, and then overlay that information onto our map of serviceable locations. And finally, we must build a way to collect data from a myriad of independent sources, including state and local governments, tribal nations, consumers, and other private and public third parties that will help us supplement and verify the information we collect from service providers. ISP submissions must reflect reality. After creating the location dataset fabric, the FCC started collecting data from potentially over 2,500 ISPs in June of 2022. There was a September 1 deadline for all facilities-based providers of fixed or mobile broadband internet access service to submit availability data, along with download and upload speeds. With penalties for not complying, ISPs must submit new data twice a year. They also have to keep submitting data in the older format, 477 format, until the FCC ends that program. The FCC said fixed broadband providers are required to report where they have actually built out their broadband network infrastructure and to which they either currently provide service or could perform a standard broadband installation. A standard installation means that service can be deployed within 10 business days with no charges or delays attributable to the extension of the network of the provider. Home and business internet providers were given the option of reporting data with either a list of locations served or with a polygon representing the availability of the provider's service. Mobile providers had to submit coverage maps based on propagation modeling for 3G, 4G, and 5G service. ISPs have now reported their own availability data to the locations identified, though it's not clear how many ISPs complied. Rural ISPs reportedly were struggling to meet the September 1 deadline. The FCC reached out to every provider on the phone and over email to encourage filings, explain the process, and offer technical assistance. Public will be able to challenge mistakes. Next, government entities will be able to challenge data in the location fabric to weed out inaccuracies. States, local governments, tribal governments, and providers can now access the initial fabric data, and the FCC has opened up a window for them to challenge this data. There's a new breed of solid-state storage products. 
the Storage Networking Industry Association, with the acronym of SNIA, has released the first edition of a new set of design to clear the way for a new breed of storage products, CSXs, short for Computational Storage Devices. CSXs differ from the regular SSDs or hard drives in that they handle data processing on board. Minimizing bottlenecks created by the need to pass data between storage and the CPU, GPU, and RAM memory. The new standards issued by storage networking industry were created to encourage interoperability between the various computational storage devices currently under development, as well as supporting the work of software architects and other programmers. There are two types of CSDs, that's computational storage devices those that incorporate processors into the storage device itself, and those that pass compute operations to a storage accelerator located nearby. Although computational storage is not appropriate for every use case, it has the potential to dramatically accelerate applications that are limited by I.O. performance rather than compute. There is clearly a broad class of applications that benefit from offloading compute functions from a main CPU to a more efficient processing engine that is more suited to the specific problem of interest. In the context of storage, we can think of applications like video transcoding, compression, database acceleration as falling into this category. A video transcoding device closely paired with a storage device can allow a video server to more efficiently stream content at many different quality levels while minimizing unnecessary I.O., and data transfers throughout the system. In addition to providing vendors with guidance for developing new CSXs, the arrival of the storage and network industry standards establish a set of common definitions that can be used to properly categorize the products that come to market. The 1.0 model has a nice baseline on definitions. Before this, there were none, but now we have computational storage devices, CSXs, Computational Storage Processors, CSPs, Computational Storage Drives, CSDs, and Computational Storage Arrays, CSAs, and more. Already, vendors from Samsung to SK Hynix are beginning to demo and release computational storage devices. But bringing standardization to the market, the new SNI specification could lay the necessary foundations for adoption on a mass scale. Quiet quitters make up half of the U.S. workforce. A Gallup survey finds that a significant share of workers are fulfilling their job responsibilities, but not engaged with their work. About half of U.S. workers could be described as quiet quitters, according to new research by survey firm Gallup, meaning they fulfill their job description, but are psychologically detached from their work. According to Gallup's survey in June of over 15,000 full-time and part-time U.S. workers, some 50% of respondents met the definition of quiet quitting, a term that has bubbled up to describe a prevalent worker mindset at a moment when the pandemic has upended employees' priorities and companies' workplace policies. The study found that the share of engaged employees held steady at 32%, and those who were actively disengaged rose to 18%, 
up from 17% at the beginning of the year. Gallup began to see employee engagement sink in late 2021, with workers indicating they felt less connected to their organization's mission, felt less clarity around what's expected of them, and saw fewer opportunities to learn and grow. According to Gallup, most quiet quitters and those in the actively disengaged camp are on the lookout for another position. Gen Z and younger millennials under 35 are one cohort that has seen a substantial drop in engagement. Since the pandemic began, the share of younger workers who strongly agree someone cares about them and encourages their development has fallen steeply. Among young workers who are not in the office full-time, less than 40% fully know what's expected of them at work. It's clear that quiet quitting is a symptom of poor management, Gallup said in the report. That insight is an underpinning for the idea of quiet firing, another new term getting traction in workplace policy debates that describes what many say is the flip side of quiet quitting. Quiet firing range from the employers who actively make working conditions miserable to managers who deny time, resources, or opportunities to employees, thereby encouraging them to leave without dismissing them outright. Gallup says one effective intervention to boost engagement is for the managers to have at least one in-depth conversation per week with each team member that lasts 15 to 30 minutes. Given that managers are essential in the fight against quiet quitting, it may prove a challenge for employers that they are among the groups that have experienced the greatest drop in engagement. At this point, only about a third of managers are engaged in their jobs. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we talk about, yes, the business world. We talk about IT in the business world, and sometimes we drift away from IT, and we talk about more of the, and that's what I'm doing today, uh, and over the course of the next few weeks in this segment, I want to talk about a new term. Now, okay, it, it's it's a new name to an old term or old terms. So I'm going to work this through a few different ways. You have heard, undoubtedly, the term quiet quitting. Okay. Over the years, I've heard it as malicious compliance. And it, it's moving in a new direction. It's something that used to be done by just somebody who was disgruntled. It used to be done by some, just, you know, one or two people who, well, this is what I'm doing because this is my job. I'm not doing anything more, except we're seeing more people do this. It's in the IT field. I'm seeing this a lot in the IT field, but I'm also seeing this out of other people. Wherever we go, we start finding out, yeah, that's not in my job description. I'm not going to do it. This is also something that's called work to rule, meaning you follow the rules, but you do the bare minimum to keep your job. This is a world of people who are not interested in climbing the ladder, the corporate ladder anymore, mostly because, yes, we know that things have shifted around. 
This isn't a temporary thing either. This is a long-term outlook for the company that we work for. And it's, it's, if you are not doing it, you at least know some of your coworkers who are. This is a paradigm shift. It is coming from both a, a long overdue worker revolt from uh, from the certain standpoint of somebody I was talking about with this. But there's also a realization across multiple generations. It, it's being blamed on the millennials, but it's actually uh, across the board that this there there's this Japanese philosophy where you go to work. You work, you work, you work. You you are one of the very first people in the office. You're one of the last people in the office. And they do this. They promote this to such a great extent that you're working yourself to death. And people are realizing that working yourself to death ultimately ends in the realization of your own mortality, ending in Yeah, death. So working yourself to death is not a good idea. So we start fighting back. Now, this all comes into play as people are realizing that, yes, the pandemic, the work from home situation for so many people is something that allowed them to have a better work-life balance. They got to see their spouses a lot more. They got to see their children more. They got to kind of check out at the end of the day. They didn't have to work, you know, until the boss went home. They didn't have to get in before the boss. They didn't have to leave after the boss, which is already a bad philosophy in itself because the boss is supposed to hold things together. The boss is supposed to be, yes, the boss. They're putting in more hours because they're getting paid more money. So we get into that realization, and now everybody has become far more comfortable with getting all of their work done and also getting more of their life done in their own home. Now, however, is a new rule that's coming up uh, in a number of places. You have to go back to the office. You have to go back and sit in that cubicle, and it's a rule. It's a new rule. Well, it's an old rule. It existed far before this, but, you know, two years ago. But now that we've had that taste of freedom, now that we've had that taste of that work-life balance, it's so much more important to us. This idea of the driving of metrics, the pressures to perform, the idea that we all need to hustle to get our job done, they all drive a defeatist philosophy. We've known for years that our child will not be the next baseball, football, basketball, hockey star. The dreams of we need it big on America's Got Talent, American Idol, whatever it is, you know, all of these different things. All of those dreams are dashed as we find out little bits and pieces of... And I want to be careful on how I say this. Corruption in the process. It's not true capital C corruption. It's just little chinks in the arm, little problems in the entire process, which lead all the way through to worlds of disappointment. Likewise, we've also realized that we, you and I, 
are not always going to be the star player in all of the metrics. We aren't going to be the amazing person who always gets the bonuses and rewards, at least not at our current employer. We realize this whole defeatist philosophy, so we prepare to job hop. Well, maybe we don't. Maybe we prepare to just settle in and get comfortable. And that is part of what quiet quitting is about. And what I want to talk about in the coming weeks, I'm going to talk about the cost to replace workers. And I'm going to talk about where does the employer sit in all of this. And yes, for those of you who are employers, how to solve this. But even for employees, how you might encourage your own boss to solve this problem for you. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Information integrity on the Internet. My favorite subject. There are surveys and there are surveys. Be aware when the survey switches the emphasis of response between the positive and the negative. Wallet Group issued a survey that highlighted the use of negative response as if it was the appropriate factor to the question. An example of straightforward reporting to the response of the question, budget carriers look appealing. More than half of Americans are willing to try a budget cell phone carrier. But what happens when the writer published a negative response? More than one American think the new iPhone is worth going into debt. According to personal finance website Wallet Hub's 2022 iPhone survey released. The emphasis is the new iPhone is worth going into debt. Well, that's a positive spin. The real headline is four in five Americans think the new iPhone is not, I repeat, not worth going into debt. More than a third of Americans think that their cell phones is their most important belonging. Well, that's a positive spin. The real headline is Most Americans do not view their cell phone as their most important belonging. 31% of people think a new phone is a necessity. Again, that's a positive spin. The headline is most people do not think a new phone is a necessity. 20% of people think that not having an iPhone is a sign someone is struggling financially. Heck, the installed base of Android phones are greater than the installed base of iPhones. Does that mean that most people are financially struggling? I don't believe there's any bias on the part of WalletHub, but it was the subconscious perspective of the writer of the article. Surveys are important, part of the information gathering when you are reviewing the purchase of a product. But be careful with how responses are crafted. Then another is the truth, and then there is the whole truth. When one cited that the racial makeup of New York's top high schools is discriminatory, I asked, based on what fact, and the person pointed me to the New York Times reporting the following. Asians made up 65% of new missions. Whites were second at 20%, and Hispanics 2.7%. The racial breakdown is a fact. But the whole truth is, the acceptance was based on the specialized high school exam and not the racial breakdown. The results of specialized exams are not related to any racial factor. The parental emphasis on excellence in academics is prioritizing study for the exams is the major factor. What we need is not selective, but full reporting on the internet. 
But it is not there, which brings me to the next topic of what is Section 230. Well, what is Section 230? Section 230 is part of the Communication Decency Act, a 1996 law passed while the Internet was still embryonic and downright terrifying to some lawmakers for what it could unleash, particularly with regards to pornography. Section 230 states that Internet platforms dubbed interactive computer services in the statute cannot be treated as publishers or speakers of content provided by the users. This means that just about anything a user posts on a platform website will not create legal liability for the platform, even if the post is defamatory, dangerous, abhorrent, or otherwise unlawful. This includes encouraging terrorism, promoting dangerous medical misinformation, and engaging in revenge porn. Platforms, including today's social media giants, Facebook, Twitter, and Google, therefore have complete control of what information Americans see or read. Section 230 was passed in 1936 as part of a broad effort by Congress to prevent minors from being bombarded online by pornography. The laws of the era had largely prevented website operators from tackling the challenge. Any effort to moderate online content had the unfortunate effect of increasing their civil liability. To mitigate this problem, Congress enshrined Section 230 into law, enabling tech companies and ordinary website owners to axe problematic content without fear of being buried in litigation. Without Section 230, the Internet as we know it would not exist. Operating a social media platform in particular would represent an enormous liability to any company. Imagine a world in which Wikimedia Foundation could be sued directly over any changes to Wikipedia made by its army of millions of unpaid editors. Realistically, the site would cease to exist. Over the past half a decade, Section 230 has become a hot-button issue among both Republicans and Democrats, often for very different reasons. Many lawmakers have come to view the protection of this provision of the law allows as too strong a shield for companies that host enormous amounts of troubling content, from health and political misinformation to pages and groups instigating real-world violence. Many experts argue that fiddling with the foundational law presents significant risk that would ultimately lead to speech being significantly curtailed online. Imagine again, if a company like YouTube had greater reasons to fear being drowned in lawsuits and what might mean for the amount of content that gets banned on the platform. Companies like Twitter and Facebook have already shown themselves to be fairly inept when it comes to discerning harmful content from the benign, and one could only imagine how much more widespread, unjustified account suspensions might become with the constant threat of financial loss dangling over their heads. This is why, acknowledging the problem, many digital rights organizations pushing for better content moderation at the big social media firms have sought non-legislative solutions to problems of misinformation, racism, and violence. That is to say, pressuring companies to implement better filters 
and procedures internally. It's worth noting that most of these campaigns have yielded little results most of the time. Reforms were mentioned again in November 2021 alongside criticism of social media fails to crack down on misinformation related to vaccines and elections. Several bills in recent years have done just that, adopting language designed to segregate the Googles and Facebooks of the world from smaller mom-and-pop websites, limiting enforcement to corporations pulling in over $500 million a year, all with over a billion users worldwide, as an example. But who decides if and how Section 230 gets amended? That would be Congress's job. A slew of laws aiming to do just that have been tossed around by both parties in both chambers, but none have ever come to a vote, as many of these bills have contained either terribly vague or overly aggressive texts. The Internet might ought to be grateful. Well, how did Section 230 came to be? The Communication Decency Act was a brainchild of Senator James Exxon, Democrat of Nebraska, who wanted to remove and prevent filth on the Internet. Because of its overreaching nature, much of the law was struck down on First Amendment grounds shortly after the Act's passage. Ironically, what remains is a provision that allows filth and other truly damaging content to metastasize on the Internet. Section 230's inclusion in the CDA was a last-ditch effort by Representative Ron Wyden, Democrat of Oregon, and Representative Chris Cox, Republican of California, to save the nascent Internet and its economic potential. They were deeply concerned by a 1995 case that found Prodigy, an online bulletin board operator, liable defamatory posts by one of its users because Prodigy lightly moderated user content. Wyden and Cox wanted to preempt the court's decision with Section 230. Without it, platforms would face a Hobson's choice. If they did anything to moderate the user content, they would be held liable for that content. And if they did nothing, who knew what unchecked horrors would be released? When Section 230 was enacted, less than 8% of Americans had access to the Internet, and those who did went online for an average of just 30 minutes a month. The law's anachronistic nature and brevity left it wide open for interpretation. Case by case, courts have used its words to give platforms broad rather than narrow immunity. As a result, Section 230 is disliked on both sides of the aisle. Democrats argue that Section 230 allows platforms to get away with too much, particularly with regards to misinformation that threatens public health and democracy. Republicans, by contrast, argue that platforms censor user content to Republicans' political disadvantage. Former President Trump even attempted to pressure Congress into repealing Section 230 completely by threatening to veto an unrelated defense spending bill. As criticisms of Section 230 and technology platforms mount, it is possible Congress could reform Section 230 in the near future. Already, Democrats and Republicans have proposed over 20 platforms from piecemeal changes to complete repeal. However, free speech and innovation advocates are worried that any of the proposed changes could be harmful. Facebook has suggested changes, and Google similarly, 
advocates for some Section 230 reform. It remains to be seen how much influence the tech giants will be able to exert on the reform process. It also remains to be seen what, if any, reform can emerge from a sharply divided Congress. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now. And Marty, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm regularly amazed. You know, years ago, I bought, uh, you know, these these foreign, no, technically they're six in one screwdrivers. And, I, you know, I just, I just recently was at the store. Uh, I was at Lowe's and I bought a couple more. Of these, just because you know, I, I'm I'm going around and I I'm finding you know with this new house I I need to place screwdrivers in strategic locations. Oh yeah. So yeah, it's uh it's always exciting to just reach out and grab a screwdriver. Do you, you, you you've you got a grin on your face. What, you, you had how many how many screwdrivers in one? Six in one. Oh Ben, you piker. <laughs> piker? What is a piker? I I shouldn't even ask. <laughs> Here is a Klein Tools 27-in-1 precision screwdriver. Wait, wait, 27-in-1? Wait, wait. <laughs> and a 27-in-1 tech screwdriver. Wait, okay, wait a second here. You're kidding me. I am not kidding you. It's got bits on the internal post that goes inside the handle barrel. That that's that's great. Look at that. Uh, yeah. And that's Klein Tools. Okay. Klein so, tools. So, so, so I know that's, that's going to be a solid item. Yeah. You know, I I went on uh, Okay, so for my tech screwdrivers, I went on I went on to Amazon and I picked up one of those cheap kits that has, you know, all of the different bits, but you know, oh, yeah. uh, bits I, in I, a box, right? Uh, in not in that it's a bits in a Velcro and um okay. uh, whatever, it's 600D um mm. uh, what is that? Nylon case. There we nylon, go. Nylon. Okay. All right. There you go. The 600 dernier nylon, yeah. Yeah. So 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 what are all the items that are in that? I'm envious. Well, they're a little bit different. Okay. Uh, Torx, for example, is an uncommon thing. And when there's a Torx fastener, if you don't have a Torx driver, it's staying there. <laughs> it's just okay. no yeah. way around it. There are a number of anti-tampering heads. Yes. Or you might yeah. you might have an open area, but it's got a post through it. And if you don't right. have that right. hole in the end of your bit, you're not getting in. Yeah. So a, a lot of what you need to get into modern electronics to fix the stuff that they're trying to keep you from touching, mm-hmm. <laughs> one or the other of these is going to get you in. Uh, but on top of that, you know, it's got uh, Phillips and it's got a straight edge and mm-hmm. it's... It, mm-hmm. Sometimes it has a hex, so you can use it as a kind of the, the little wrench. I don't recommend that because they make multi wrenches too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it's it's so funny. You you have a lot of you have a lot of client tools. I, I am envious on this. So so, how often do you come across? Yeah, we, we we should take off on on something that Keith and I talk about every once in a while, and that's the right to repair act. How often do you come across these crazy things where, like Apple, I I know you're not in the Apple ecosystem. I don't know, does Samsung do a lot of these security bits, a lot of these weird pentalobe and trilobe screwdrivers? 
I imagine so, but I don't. I, I, I've had three Samsung batteries blow up on me, so I have Google Pixel products now. Oh, uh, okay. And now, and, now are uh, they locking those down? Are they? Um... I I really haven't looked because I never take them out of their OtterBox case. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, okay. So uh, you know, if I am I going to go in there and fix it? If I have to, but the chances are if I've opened it up, I've screwed something up. <laughs> <laughs> yes, or unscrewed something. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But there's other stuff. I mean, uh, a lot of USB-connected gear has yeah. these strange screws. Why? Because if you could find out what's inside, you might figure out it wasn't really worth what they're paying and what they have you pay for it. Uh, and pretty much everything these days. Uh, well. <laughs> Yeah, once it made it out of the container ship and into your backyard store, it, it's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think we're still waiting for 2019 product to be delivered. Oh yeah, yeah. I uh, think everybody's experiencing some of that. Yeah, I I just ordered something uh, recently, and they gave me a delivery date that is four months in the future. Oh, uh, wait till just, you get into trying to build stuff. You can order a processor now for your new product. Yeah, and. The common processor, the one that, you know, DigiKey told you you can get for prototyping, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. To yeah. get production quantities, you could be out 60 to 80 weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, and yeah, I've, I've got uh, another thing which I'm waiting. I'm deciding whether I want to bite the bullet on that and uh, wait for, yeah, 24 weeks. And that's a, that's a, it's a hobby item. All right, you've you've got a, okay. This there's a box. What, what's well, in the we, box? Well, we had we had you know inside the handle of these screwdrivers, and they're not really overly large screwdrivers. You can see it in my hand here. Yeah, Radio yeah. people squint and imagine. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, uh, twenty-seven heads there, but for your head, uh, Klein has this carbon safety helmet. Okay, with with a headlight, a removable a, headlight on the front. With a headlight, okay, nice. So, you know, very cool, and it's padded inside, and I think. If you really had to, you could wet the pad to keep your head a little cool in oh, these and the, yeah, ninety the, plus days. That uh, yeah, then striking across the country, just just yeah, yeah. That is uh, that that actually looks really good. <laughs> That's what that looks really really cool. I like that carbon fiber yeah, look to it. Do, it do they a lot. <laughs> do they do they have uh, do they have other colors for it? I didn't ask. Okay, yeah, because okay, so my brother-in-law, he gets it. He's he's uh, he deals in the construction industry and with fire he wants trucks. Orange. And he wants orange or yellow. I, <laughs> I I think it's I think he's supposed to wear white or blue. I forget. I don't know. That's who well, knows. He could, he could probably paint it. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> this is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The Brookdale Computer Users Group will have a presentation on Chromebooks and Alternative, Thursday, September the 22nd. Meeting time is 6.45 p.m. Virtual meeting via Zoom. Meeting ID is pcug.com. The Westchester PC Users Group meets Thursday, October the 6th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. 
and the presentation will be the James Webb Telescope, online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, October the 7th. Meeting time is 8 p.m., online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Meeting ID is acgnj.org. The King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, October the 11th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. They meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, located at 220 Cadman Plaza West, Brooklyn. For more information, the phone number is 347-278-7320. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, October the 13th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom, nyacc.org for meeting ID. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, October the 15th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. The website is limac.org. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Joe King, Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week.